Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 217, The Red Dawn, part 1. Today I want to talk about a story that's important, but rather hard to convey simply. It's prompted by one of the many anniversaries that were coming on in this, the year 2017. As many of you likely know, we are three quarters of the way through the 100-year anniversary commemorations of World War I, probably the most important conflict in the 20th century. In so many ways, the First World War laid out the preconditions for the rest of world history the 20th century up to today. Specifically, in the late autumn of 2017, we're coming up on, and in fact, as of Tuesday of this very week, have just passed, one of the most important anniversaries in the entire war. The story of this particular anniversary begins in the spring of 1917, when the government of Russia's Tsar, which had been teetering on the brink for a while now, finally collapsed. The Tsar had been on shaky footing for years. Imperial Russia had, of course, been badly humiliated at the hands of Japan during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. And in the earlier campaigns of World War I, those didn't play out well for the Tsar either. Russian troops were crushed in humiliating defeats, like the Battle of Tannenberg of 1914. A more energetic monarch perhaps could have found a way to revive the family fortunes, but Tsar Nicholas II was not that man. Melancholic, depressed, and fatalistic, the man seemingly took no joy in being Tsar, but also felt that as a divinely appointed monarch he could not resign and hand over power to someone else. Doing so would run counter to the will of God. So Nicholas did little to try and right the ship, and as a result, by 1917, popular patience with the Tsar's government had worn out. Uprisings across European Russia led to the collapse of the Tsar's government and the imposition of a new, democratic, provisional government of Russia. Yet the provisional government, too, was not to last, thanks primarily to its insistence on remaining involved in World War I, as well as growing economic difficulties, resulting from the collapse of Russia's infrastructure under the strain of constant war. Well-positioned to take advantage of the growing unrest were Russia's communists, in particular, the uncompromising hard-left revolutionaries known as Bolsheviks, led by the determined and charismatic Vladimir Lenin. Lenin and his allies spent 1917 carefully infiltrating the leadership of the committees of workers formed in Russia's major cities, these committees were called Soviets, which is simply the Russian word for council. Once the Bolsheviks controlled the Soviets, they began organizing them to rise up against the government. On what is, by our dating system, November 7, 1917, units of soldiers organized by the Soviets began a coup against the provisional government, seizing control of major government buildings in the crucial city of Petrograd, St. Petersburg today, later to be renamed by the Soviets as Leningrad. By the way, I say our dating system because up until the revolution, Russia still used the old Julian calendar rather than the more modern Gregorian one, meaning that the dates in pre-Bolshevik Russia were slightly different from the ones in the rest of the world. That's why this revolution, which began in November, is known by a name based on the old Russian dating system, the October Revolution. But this is not the story of the October Revolution. Instead, it's the story of how the rest of the world reacted to that revolution. 
For the Allies of World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution was their worst nightmare made real, for two distinct reasons. First, Russia was a crucial ally in the war against the Central Powers led by Germany. Russia's army certainly had not been terribly successful during the war, but they still kept large numbers of German soldiers tied up in the east. If Russia dropped out of the war, which the Soviets immediately announced their intention to do, those German troops would be free to head west and assault the Allied stronghold of France, potentially ending the war in Germany's favor. Second, of course, communism was the great ideological boogeyman of the age. It's really hard for us to remember this in hindsight because we know how the story plays out, but remember that the Soviets were the first communist state, and that until Stalin changed the official doctrine of the Soviet government in the 1920s, the policy of Russian communists was not just to turn Russia red, but to spread their ideas around the whole world. This was why, for example, the Russians took a really raw deal from the Germans in their final peace negotiations in 1918 at the Polish town of Brest-Litovsk. In the negotiations, Russia gave up something like one-third of its European holdings, but for the Soviets, that didn't really matter. The revolution was coming to Germany anyway, and once it did, the whole area would be red. For one nation in particular, though, the collapse of Imperial Russia was viewed with, well, consternation, but also hungry eyes. For the rulers of Imperial Japan, the start of the Russian Revolution represented a real opportunity to remold Asia in their image. In 1917, Imperial Japan was in a pretty good position. The overseas empire Japan had been assembling for the past half-century now included Korea, Taiwan, and China's Liaodong Peninsula which had been taken, in fact, from Russia itself. And Japan, rather opportunistically, had taken advantage of the outbreak of war in Europe in 1914 to jump in on the side of the Allies, using the pretext of its alliance with the UK to seize Germany's holdings in China and the Pacific, which were left virtually undefended, as most of Germany's strength was concentrated in Europe. Ever since seizing those territories, Japan's contribution to the war effort had been limited more or less to selling war material – bullets, medicine, cloth, machine parts, anything they could get – to the other allies. The prices at which the Japanese sold these items to their allies were, of course, marked down – a discount for friends in need – but the profit margin was still enough to erase Japan's existing debts and put the country well into the black. It was not a great time to be European in 1917, but it was a good time to be Japanese. The war in Europe also meant that the European powers took their attention away from Asia for a time, which freed up the Japanese to extend their influence in the region. This was the time, for example, of the infamous 21 Demands, when the Japanese government took advantage of the absence of European military power in Asia to try and bully a bunch of concessions out of the Chinese government. That particular move had backfired to an extent. Japan got most of its concessions, but badly alienated even those Chinese sympathetic to Japan, as well as many of Japan's own allies. Russia, on the other hand, well, nobody was going to stick up for a bunch of dirty commies. In addition to pure geopolitical opportunism, there was one other factor motivating the Japanese response to the rise of the Bolsheviks, a deep-seated ideological loathing for communism. 
Remember that we are talking about a government that began planning for how to quash the rise of communism within its borders back before it even had factories, and thus before it even had a working class that would try and rise up against the government. We are talking about a government that broke up the founding of the Socialist Party in a matter of hours. There was, in the halls of power in Tokyo, a deep-seated antipathy towards the very ideology of the Russian Revolution that is really hard for us to imagine. Communism was, after all, an existential threat to the very continuation of an emperor-centric Japanese regime. The prime minister at the time of the Russian Revolution was a man who exemplified that ideological antipathy towards communism, a military man named Teruuchi Masatake. Teruuchi was a hard-nosed administrative veteran. He'd been the war minister during the Russo-Japanese War, and before his tenure as prime minister, he'd served as governor general of Korea, and presided over the enforcement of the annexation of that once-proud kingdom. Masatake got his start as one of the hangers-on to the man who really called the shots in 1918, the last remaining major member of the emperor's cabal of advisors, or genro, Yamagata Aritomo. Yamagata had fought against the armies of the shogun way back in 1868, and had been involved in the ground-up development of the Imperial Japanese Army from its inception in the 1870s. In the process of building up his pet institution, Yamagata also developed the army into a bastion for men from his home region of Choshu, one of the old feudal domains that more or less lines up with modern Yamaguchi Prefecture. Masatake himself was a Choshu man, and that had helped him get a start in the army. He'd actually served as a foot soldier in the war against the Shogun as a part of Choshu's military, and after the war he'd received commission as a second lieutenant within the fledgling National Army. As a Choshu man, he was eligible for certain fast tracks not open to those from other domains, chief among them a chance to study abroad at one of the best military schools in the world, the French Officers' Academy at Saint-Cyr. Despite losing to the Germans in 1870, the French military still enjoyed a reputation as the best in the world, and studying at Saint-Cyr did a lot to kickstart young Teruuchi's career. So there's three things you have to know about Prime Minister Teruuchi Masatake. First, he was deeply loyal to his patron Yamagata, who had made his career possible. Second, he was hard-nosed and practical in his approaches. Third, he had a very high opinion of the army he served in and his own abilities. So unsurprisingly, he began to push almost immediately for an intervention in the Bolshevik Revolution. In this, he enjoyed the support of his boss Yamagata, but also a great deal of international support. You see, the Allies, shocked by goings-on in Russia, began almost immediately to consider intervention in Russia itself. This, on its face, seems a bit ridiculous. France and Britain were, by 1917, throwing pretty much everything they had at Germany. The idea that they were somehow also capable of intervening in Russia, of all godforsaken places, seemed, well, overambitious to say the least. However, the newest addition to the Allies, the United States, which had joined the war that very year, was also deeply committed to ideological anti-communism and had promised to dispatch troops to Siberia. And of course, Japan itself still had a fresh army ready and able to march into what had once been the Russian Empire. 
When it became clear by early 1918 that the Russian provisional government would not be able to quickly reassert order and crush the Bolsheviks, the plan for intervention began to get off the ground. The goal, as laid out by the Allies, was a multilateral alliance of nations which would step in and bolster anti-Bolshevik elements in Russia, providing them a chance to either break off from Russia, or in the worst case to flee the communist advance, or at best even march on the Soviet capital at Moscow and reinstate the Russian provisional government, which would in turn allow Russia to re-enter the war. However, initial discussions on intervention between France, Britain, and the United States actually did not include Japan for a very simple reason. All three countries were aware of the bad blood between Russia and Japan after the Russo-Japanese War, and figured that the Japanese would likely try to take advantage of any such invitation to participate in intervention to try and reorganize the regional map in their favor. And that was not the goal of the Allies. Their goal was to stabilize Russia, or at least to try and contain the spread of communism, not to try and take advantage of the situation and pick Russia apart. Their suspicion was also not unfounded, because there absolutely were people in Tokyo urging just that, that Japan seized the opportunity presented by the implosion of Russia and permanently gained the upper hand in East Asia. Specifically, the chief of Japan's army general staff, responsible for planning any and all military operations, supported intervening in Russia not as part of a high-minded alliance to contain communism, but as part of a deeply nationalistic attempt to peel off Russia's easternmost provinces and turn them into a permanently Japanese-aligned buffer state. That general staff chief was Uehara Yusaku. Like Prime Minister Terauchi, he was a former samurai from a clan that had fought against the shogunate, in his case, Satsuma. Uehara was a military man to the core, and viewed the situation in Russia through pure military utility. He argued that the Russian Civil War presented an opportunity to fragment the Russian Empire and remove its ability to threaten Japan. Now sure, that was not what Japan's other allies wanted, but Uehara was a military man and only cared about military concerns insofar as they related to Japan's own security. This view of events in Russia through the lens of raw realpolitik was common throughout the corridors of power in Japan, but there were those who rejected it. They were led by what was, at the time, a growing opposition movement, the Democratic Parties of Japan, led by the Seiyukai, or Friends of Constitutional Government, and its enigmatic leader, Hara Takashi. The Seiyukai, originally, had been created to be an instrument of government will. After the highly autocratic Meiji Constitution came into force, Japan's rising middle class began to agitate for a greater degree of popular representation. Parties like the Seiyukai were supposed to provide an outlet for those who wanted democratic reforms without, you know, actually providing real democratic governance. That's why the Seiyukai had been organized by a member of the governing oligarchy, our old friend Ito Hirabumi. However, the Seiyukai had departed pretty far from that original vision of providing a harmless outlet for democratic energies and was actually succeeding in building support for reform within Japan's government, thanks in no small part to the energies of Hara Takashi. Now, we've actually talked a bit about Hara Takashi before. If you're curious, take a look at our old episode called The Great Commoner. 
But for a quick refresher, Hara and his allies were swept up in the vision of the post-war era provided by Democratic leaders like Woodrow Wilson. Specifically as related to foreign policy, Hara embraced the idea of a democratic post-war order that would get rid of all the backroom deals that had led to World War I in the first place. As such, Hara and his colleagues did actually support the Siberian intervention, but for very different reasons than Chief of Staff Uehara or Prime Minister Teruuchi did. They wanted Japan to participate as a responsible member of the community of nations, to prove that Japan was capable of playing ball with other countries in a genuinely international alliance. To push this agenda, they used the best weapon they had, newspapers. Japan's high level of literacy and growing consumer culture made print news a very influential part of day-to-day -day politics, and most of the major newspapers were aligned with middle-class interests and political parties. As such, when intervention was being discussed in the winter of 1917 to 1918, editorials flooded the market calling on Japan to support intervention in Russia, but as an equal and disinterested partner, not as part of a cynical power grab. Still, for now the power of parties was relatively limited and so cynical calculation dominated the day. When word got out in early January that the British were sending a warship to the Russian port of Vladivostok on the Pacific in order to support the still anti-Bolshevik government of that city, the result was panic in the halls of Tokyo. Sure, the British were allies, but it was unacceptable to have another power projecting influence into Vladivostok, a place so close to Japan itself. In a panic and determined to beat the British there, the Japanese government dispatched two destroyers, the Iwami and the Asahi, the first of which beat the British contingent to Vladivostok by a mere couple of days. Once a Japanese presence actually arrived in Vladivostok, though, problems began to crop up almost immediately. Vladivostok was still held by a governor loyal to the old Tsar, but that didn't mean he wasn't aware of Japan's desire to redraw the map in its own favor. He denied the Japanese the right to land troops to protect the city from communists. When an armed Russian mob, convinced that the Japanese were about to try and settle some old scores from the Russo-Japanese War, took matters into its own hands and burned down the Japanese consulate in the city, the Japanese commander on the scene took matters into his own hands. Above the objections of the British and the Russians, he ordered the 500 marines under his command to restore order in Vladivostok. The decision proved controversial in Tokyo, where it came under rapid attack from Hara and the party establishment as a violation of Japan's impartial role in the intervention. Among the Allies more generally, it seemed to confirm the worst fears about Japan's goals in Russia. However, by 1918, the simple truth was that there weren't really many other powers in a position to intervene in a big way in Russia. France and Britain remained committed to steering down Germany's final offensive in Europe, and the United States was assembling a force of its own to try and dive into the fray and prevent the collapse of France. The only ones with a big enough army to make a difference in the Russian Far East, were the Japanese. By 1918, Russia had descended into a state of civil war. Broadly speaking, once it became clear that the Bolsheviks' October Revolution was entrenched in at least a part of Russia, 
the old Russian Empire fragmented into three large competing blocs. On the one hand, we have the Reds, the Bolsheviks and those left-wing socialist and communist groups that chose to ally themselves with Lenin's very specific view of the revolution. Then we have the Whites, an even more disparate group of monarchists, democratic reformists, and others who agreed on very little other than not liking communists. Finally, we have everyone else. In particular, ethnic non-Russians who had never been particularly big on being a part of the Russian Empire took the chance to try and break free. Ukrainians, Finns, Poles, and many, many others. The full scope of the Russian Civil War is well beyond our focus here, both because a large chunk of it takes place in European Russia, far removed from the armies of Japan, and because the interactions between all of those different factions are very complicated. What I want to focus on is specifically the Russian Far East, the theater where Japan's influence, unsurprisingly, was the strongest. The Russian Far East was and is, well, ethnically complicated. Actually, that might be one of the biggest understatements in the history of the podcast. The Russian Far East is very ethnically diverse. It was conquered over the course of the 16 and 1700s by European Russians during Russia's campaign of eastern expansions under the Tsars, and includes many peoples who, to varying degrees, did not identify with Russia. Included in the region were groups as disparate as Mongols, Uzbeks, Turks, Kamchatkins, Ainu, Aleuts, and, depending on where you put the cutoff, Siberians themselves. Even though we commonly call all of eastern Russia Siberia, Siberia as a region is actually to the west of the place called the Russian Far East. It's a bit confusing, I know. I'll put a map up on the website to help. Now, this ethnic hodgepodge made the Russian Far East very confusing, but it also meant that most of the groups in the region were not super big on the whole Bolshevik thing. They were, for the most part, interested primarily in more regional autonomy to control their own lives. The policy of the Russian imperial government had been one of forced ethnic assimilation designed to bring ethnic minorities under control by russifying them, which was, for understandable reasons, not particularly popular with the people being russified. By all indications, while the Bolsheviks talked a good game about respecting minority rights, they were not prepared to offer real autonomy, and besides, the leadership of most of these groups skewed a bit more conservative than, well, flat-out Bolshevik. In addition, the Japanese also had two ready-made allies in the region. The first was a leader, or Ottoman, of a group called the Cossacks, named Grigory Semenov. The Cossacks are a complex bunch. Their origins are a bit murky, but they're often thought to be descendants of one or more of the tribes of the vast Eurasian steppelands. They're a nomadic and independent people who have spread all over Russia, thanks to a strained but usually mutually beneficial alliance between their own people and the Russian Empire. Many Cossacks served in the Russian military in their own units, usually as cavalry. Semenov himself followed that tradition. He distinguished himself in the First World War and was home in the Transbaikal region, that is, the area to the east of Lake Baikal, which is to the north of Mongolia, when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out. Semenov quickly took a leading role as an anti-Bolshevik fighter and thus came to the attention of the Japanese. 
Their other potential ally was Alexander Kolchak, an ethnic Russian and admiral in the Russian Navy who was stationed in East Asia when the revolution broke out. A staunch monarchist who believed Russia had dishonored itself for leaving World War I, he quickly made his way to Vladivostok in the wake of British and Japanese arrival there. Once in Vladivostok, he shot through the ranks of a new British-backed white Russian government stationed in the Far East. Now, given the task of coordinating with these allies and leading Japan's campaign in the Far East, was a relatively young but prestigious member of the general staff, General Mitsue Yui. He had some field experience from the Russo-Japanese War, but far more importantly, he'd been on the general staff as one of its rising stars since 1918, and was thus very close to Chief of Staff Uehara, and in turn to Prime Minister Terauchi. He could be counted on to carry out his role. So we've got our major figures in place. Mitsue on the ground, taking orders from Terauchi and Uehara, being opposed by the civilian Hara Takashi, and trying to work with Grigory Semenov, Alexander Kolchak, and other white Russians to prop up an anti-Bolshevik government in the Far East. How bad can it get? Well, find out next time, because that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Christoph Lowe for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Red Dawn, Part 2.